Welcome to the Ask JP Podcast. I'm JP Morrell, your host and state senator for District 3. This is the podcast we do each week during legislative session to give you updates on what's going on, as well as answer your questions and concerns regarding what's going on in the Louisiana legislature. Uh, first, we'll begin with a couple of updates. The sexual assault reform legislation that I've been sponsoring had some really big moves this week. SB 37, mandating increased training for all law enforcement officers in regards to investigating sexual assault, domestic violence, and homicide investigation, advanced off the Senate floor with no significant debate. It's waiting to be scheduled in House Committee. SB 242, mandating the annual reporting of information regarding sexual assault kits, sexually oriented criminal offenses, passed committee. It's on the floor of the Senate this week, as well as SB 255. This is a really big bill. It deals with the creating of a supplemental Title IX framework for combating sexual assault on college campuses. In layperson's terms, this is where the legislature gets into the nuances of telling colleges what they're required to do to combat sexual assault. As many of you may may recall from last year, last summer, we got a lot of information basically stating that colleges really had no idea what the heck they were doing in regards to creating an environment where young women felt safe reporting that they had been assaulted as well as properly tracking or going after offenders. So what we're doing with this bill is we're creating a framework to really put requirements on colleges that deal with things like creating confidential advisors or people that these young women can talk to about their concerns and can help them figure out what are their best possible options for their individual case. A great example is talking to a young lady and helping her realize that she has multiple options. She can pursue her alleged attacker either through the campus process, through a disciplinary tribunal, or if if they want to, they can actually go to the police and report that crime. And obviously that'd be preferable, but really laying out to the victim what their options are. So that's what SB 255 does. And I'm very excited. It got out of committee um, with minimal amendments there is some pushback from our education. There always is, but the Senate itself seemed to be on board, so we're in good shape. We should be having a floor debate on that this week, next week, the, the following week, early at latest. So that's some really great work. Next up, your questions. Our first and second questions, which are directly related to LSEA, came from Twitter. Before we get to those questions, let me give a brief explanation of what LSEA is. The Louisiana Science Education Act, Act 473 of 2008, is a law passed by the legislature on June 11, 2008, and signed law by Governor Jindal. The act allows public school teachers to use supplemental materials in the science classroom which are critical of established science on such topics as the theory of evolution and global warming. Louisiana was the first state to have passed a law of this type. Um, This is what's commonly known in the state vernacular as the creationism law, because basically what the bill did is it allows for public school teachers to teach young men and women that creationism is as valid as evolution. Proponents of the law state that it is meant to promote critical thinking and improve education. However, 
Scientific societies collectively representing millions of scientists have opposed the bill, and every scientific society that has given a position about the bill has opposed it. To clarify on that, basically the rest of the world thinks we're nuts. That we have a bill or a law that allows a layperson to go into a classroom and claim that creationism is as valid and has as much scientific backing as evolution does. Now, I was one of three votes in the House of Representatives in 2008 against this bill. I believe the final vote was 100 to 3. And I opposed it then, I oppose it now, because essentially you're dealing with a serious issue regarding the separation of church and state. A public school is a governmental entity, and as such, is supposed to be secular in nature. Part of the reason our founding fathers create the separation of church and state is because they were very wary of when religion gets wrapped up in government and the two become merged. As many of you may recall, our founding fathers fled England because the head of the Church of England was the king of England. And that combination of state promoting a singular religion is what led them to leave England. So whenever I see uh, bills like this, bills that seem to advocate promotion of a state religion, it's it's very concerning to me, and it concerned me then, it concerned me now. And, and there's some information I'll give you later on what we're talking that will kind of explain to you why a lot of those concerns were probably correct. Uh, since 2010, Zach Coplin, then a high school student, he's now a college student, launched an ongoing campaign to repeal the law. The campaign has been endorsed by 78 Nobel laureates and more than a dozen scientific and educational associations. Bills to repeal the LSEA have failed to advance past the Senate Education Committee for five years in a row from 2011 through this year. First question from Blair H. from Twitter. So how did the whole creationism debate go yesterday? This was obviously on Wednesday, two days ago. The bill didn't get out of committee but it was the closest it ever come to doing so. The final vote was actually four to three, and the chairman had to cast the deciding vote to keep the bill from advancing forward. So the previously, before I was on education, the vote typically was five to two or four to two with the chairman not voting. So movement in the state is glacial often, and this was one of those glacial moments where the ball is moving forward, albeit slowly. But there was some movement. But more important, I think what Blair wanted to hear about was the debate. Essentially, Zach did a similar presentation to the ones he'd done in previous years with one significant twist. He brought an example of the abuse and discrimination under the current law. Specifically, he brought a young man who was born in Thailand. Now, he's a young, young man. Was more of a, he's actually currently a uh, junior high student. A young man born in Thailand who had been adopted by a family in Wachita Parish. Though adopted into an American family, he wanted to and was encouraged by his parents to continue his Buddhist faith. During his, quote, science class, end quote, he was not only told that evolution was false and invented by stupid people, but his own beliefs as a Buddhist were mocked in class by the same, quote, science, end quote, teacher. Gets better. When the parents complained about this scenario... The letter they sent to the principal was read by the principal over the PA system to the entire school to further alienate and mock this brave boy. This was pretty horrifying. I mean, honestly, one of the big concerns that the three of us had in the house when this bill was passed was that 
it was sold as a way to teach children, uh, edu- educate our children in multiple different types of theories that are out there. And one of the questions that was put on the floor in both the Senate and the House was, well, you say alternative theories. What alternative theories? And they said, well, all alternative theories. And many of us said, so you're talking about, like, you know, all the different theories of how the world started. And I, I was very specific in that, in that line of questioning back then because there are many different religions across the world that have very different theories on how life started. Uh, the Anu people of Japan, who are actually the, I guess you could say the Native Americans, the Native Japanese of Japan, they're sort of like the uh, indigenous people. Their theory on how the world began was that a giant bird was sent by the gods to the planet Earth, or the world, and it flapped its wings and scratched its feet and brought Earth up from the bowels of the ocean to create islands and land masses. That's an example. Um, I would go into the example offered by Scientology, but I'll... I would probably mess up that bit of science fiction. So I'd encourage all of you to go Google the South Park episode where they explain it. But essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, Lord Zanu from some faraway planet sent away uh, political opponents and dumped them into the volcanoes in the planet Earth from on their space transport ships. They dropped the people, the, the other aliens into these volcanoes, and he trapped the souls of the, the dead aliens... Um, on our planet and those dead aliens have infected all of us with their discord and and hurt and hate and part of that religious religious group's tenets is that you are you are you are taught how to identify these things that are infecting you and by bringing them into harmony you bring harmony to your life Obviously, there's some very different ideas on how the world began, and our goal, we had that conversation, we said, well, listen, if you're going to say this is to teach alternative theories, you got to teach all of them. They said, sure, we'll teach all of them. That, that's not what's happening. What's happening is they're teaching one, and that one seems to be the one that's typically the Judeo-Christian one. So it, it was a concern we had then. It's a concern that's obviously come to fruition, and it leads directly into our next question. Sarah S. asks, creationism in public schools, who would be in charge of teaching this curriculum? Sarah, I have no idea. It's typically encouraged in most functioning schools that the science teacher has some working knowledge of how science works. Biology, physics, baking soda volcanoes, electricity. It would appear in this instance that all you need to teach creationism in schools is a general idea of what Genesis says and a liberal dose of intolerance. Going back to the original point I made at the beginning of this this section, the supporters of this bill argued in 2008 that LSEA would promote critical thinking skills, logical analysis, and open and objective discussions of scientific theories such as evolution, the origin of life, global warming, and human cloning. To that end... Telling a kid that evolution is stupid is an opinion stated as a fact, as there is no evidence that was brought in that this teacher empirically provided any data to support our hypothesis. What we found with this bill is it's more of an example of someone using an ill-conceived law 
to force their own opinion on impressionable kids who are going to be at a competitive disadvantage in regards to STEM going forward. Now, STEM, for those of you who don't know, is an acronym that's used by people, by educators, especially in higher education, in regards to science, technology, engineering, and math curriculum. These are the curriculums of the future. These are where we have scientists, where we have biologists, where we have physicists. It's where we get graphic designers from. Basically, these are the core building blocks to having someone who's involved in any scientific field or any field that involves technology. If the goal of this bill was to encourage debate and creative thought, it is obvious that in the implementation of this bill, that has not occurred. In fact, from the example I just gave you, not only was there no creative thinking that was seemed to be facilitated, when, whenever someone's key part of their debate is that the, any opinion contrary to theirs is stupid, that's basically teaching kids nothing other than to adopt the bully mentality of any opinion different from mine is inherently wrong, and you should shun it and shun the people who make it. And that is not only a disservice to the kids you're purporting to educate, you are mentally handicapping them as far as being able to compete with their peers from across the world. We often say that we're so tired of being the last in everything. You can't complain to the rest of the world that you're being handicapped and hobbled in running the race for jobs, technology, in the future if you're constantly, literally shooting yourself in the foot. An interesting side note, something that I thought was very pertinent in that debate process, and it goes back to Blair H.'s question, is Dan Clater made a very interesting point during the debate. He said that Basically, for those of you who don't know, the Louisiana Science Education Act, it was the brainchild of the Louisiana Family Forum. Additionally, the Religious Freedom Act that we're currently dealing with, as well as its amendments, was the brainchild of the Louisiana Family Forum. The instance that we heard about, and this was not hearsay, we actually had the, uh, the young man in committee as well as his horrified parent. So this was not something that was like an anecdotal story. This was actually the people it happened to talked about it. In the instance described in Watchtop Parish, attacking someone's religion while imposing your own religious beliefs would seem to both affirm the Religious Freedom Act and violate it at the same time. Now, by that I mean that the student who was there as a Buddhist trying to operate in the school and just quietly do his thing should have been protected by the Religious Freedom Act. At the same time, under the proposed amendments by Representative Mike Johnson, the teacher who was berating the kid's religion and trying to impose her religion on him, under Mr. Johnson's amendments, she would be protected from doing so. So basically, it's a wash, and a terrible wash at that. So sometimes when you have a lot of bills dealing with our secular government that have religion as the common thread, it's often problematic. When you merge with that LSEA, that there's this, there's this act that encourages and promotes anyone to make up a curriculum where they can push their religious views, 
not only do you have around the possibility of having two different religions conflict, but essentially you're having a, gov- a government-sponsored idea of what creation is imposed upon your children. I will tell you, this is purely taking a step back. This is, as a Republican or a Democrat, liberal or conservative, if the idea of the government programming your kid to think a certain way and to observe any individual religion does not scare the hell out of you, it should. Next up, we'll have a question from the web. Last question from jpmorell.com. Rob R. asks, I'm concerned with this debate regarding the movie tax credit and how it affects the actual infrastructure construction in our state. Two proposed projects, the Ranch in St. Bernard and Deep South Studios in Algiers, seem to be on the brink of breaking ground. How does this debate affect them? Great question, Rob. In short, it's devastating. I'm going to devote the next week's podcast to discuss a variety of questions I've received regarding the film tax credits. This, this, consider this a preview because it's a much larger, more complicated issue. The nature of our legislative sessions in Louisiana creates a specific cycle where we alternate between fiscal and non-fiscal years. During fiscal years, we consider all fiscal bills and are limited to five non-fiscal bills. So basically, we consider tax credits and tax breaks and the like, but we can only deal with, let's say, sexual assault can only be one of five bills. During non-fiscal years, we do the opposite. We consider unlimited regular bills and no fiscal bills. That's an important bit of background because the legislature is constantly reviewing film, which is good, but there is an inherent uncertainty in legislators' threats to get rid of the credit every other year. It's created a scenario where all significant film projects, infrastructure and otherwise, slow to a crawl every 18 months leading into every fiscal year. Financing becomes questionable, and the state's commitment to this industry comes into question. This is a really important thing for, for all of you to consider. If you operate a business and your biggest client told you that every 18 months he'd have to think about whether or not he was going to rehire you, that would certainly have a whole lot of effect on whether or not you would expand or invest in that business. Honestly, I think when people complain about that the film industry has not done enough to build roots, to build infrastructure, to build post-production facilities in the state, I would honestly say that this 18-month cycle is a large part of that. North Carolina's film credit implosion just in this last year kind of validated that fear that any state anywhere with a credit program, they can decide to get rid of it overnight. And suddenly, if you've built millions of dollars in post-production facilities, your facilities are basically sitting there useless afterwards. I guess to answer your question more succinctly, Rob, the threat of the credits going away does make people question whether or not they want to spend millions of dollars building infrastructure for a growth industry as the state may be lining up to chase it out. A key part of the giant film reform package that I've been working on with Representative Stokes is an effort 
to address this issue definitively so we're not back here in 18 months talking about some dramatic change in the credit. Now, to be clear, like every credit, it is likely that film will be tinkered with going forward to address return on investment concerns. I don't think that's what scares the industry. What scares the industry is that every 18 months, the legislature vehemently reaffirms its right to obliterate the program if they so choose. And having a state in that position, having us do that every 18 months, it's not doing us any favors. And honestly, I think if we're going to attract more definitive infrastructure investment, and realize we have no... the. We used to have, when the program began in 2002, there was an infrastructure credit. We used to give money to have guys build studios. We, we stopped doing that. So this infrastructure I'm talking about, Deep South and uh, the ranch, these are all private money wanting to spend their money in the state on this industry. They're not getting any state support. And they're not doing so because right now, as we speak, the threat that this credit could be eliminated overnight, it really it really has uncertainty in their business models, and it's something you have to consider in the overall debate. At the end of the day, this is a complicated issue. This is merely one part of it, and like I said earlier, because I've gotten so many questions regarding film, so many great questions, Next week, for next week's podcast, we're going to bring in uh, a couple of special guests, and we're going to have probably a little roundtable about what's going on with the film tax credit and what different ideas are on how we can save it. So uh, I would expect us to have one or two special guests to have a real dialogue and talk about what the current status is. Also, Representative Robodeau's bill that he filed late last week uh, dealing with the tax credit and his proposed cap, which is similar to mine, should be in or out of committee at that point, so it'll really be ripe for discussion. And that ends our questions. Thanks for listening to Ask JP this week. Please keep the questions coming through Twitter with the hashtag AskJP and the website at www.jpmorel.com. Hope you had a great informative time and I look forward to talking to you next week.